We're going to draw a line in the sand and say, this is the way we're going to do it. And we're going to be loud about that. And it may not work. Hey, podcast listener. You're listening to the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around. Sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 81 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about drawing lines in the sand. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist. And yes, another quick review to get us underway today. Listen to this guy, five stars by Listen to Me One from the US, a much-needed voice of the cyclist that is interested in the real details of being an athlete, cyclist. I've learned more from cycling from this guy's podcast than I have from Phil and Paul in 30 years. Wow, wow, wow. That is a super duper compliment. Although I've never heard those guys talk about training. They just talk a lot of shit that we've heard a thousand times before. But anyway, a reminder to you that if you do like the show, I would love it if you could stop past either iTunes or Stitcher and leave a review because five stars make me go. Thank you very much. And two great articles that I came across this week. The first one is a kind of combination of things because it led me down a mini rabbit hole of interesting topics and and it's a study out of the University of Exeter called Modeling the Expenditure and Reconstitution of Work Capacity Above Critical Power. It's by Dr. Philip Skiba, Professor Andy Jones, Dr. Vinnie Van Haltelow, and Werapung Tony Chidnook. It's really fascinating stuff, and maybe some of it is a little bit obvious, but it seems like there is a huge movement that is starting to quantify the amount of work it takes to recover after going above our threshold. And they talk about the critical power threshold here, which they talk about being a threshold that you can feel. But there was a really great post done by Dr. Skibar himself on a triathlon forum. So I'm quoting this directly from what was written in the actual forum. And for a bit of background, there are two important things we need to be aware of, the critical power CP and the W prime. You can read a bit more about CP in an article that he posted, but for the sake of simplicity, think of the CP as the threshold you feel. It's the point at which you realize that you're near your highest sustainable power output, and beyond that, you intuitively know going any harder will make you fatigue much sooner. When you proceed above CP, you begin to use something called W prime, or what was previously called anaerobic work capacity. You can think of it like a battery. When you go above your CP, the battery gets used up. When you drop below CP, it gets recharged very, very slowly though. The problem is that if you use up your battery completely, you feel terrible and just end up soft pedaling. So what they wanted to see was what would happen during intermittent exercise. In other words, if we put athletes in a situation where we had to go above CP for some period of time and then give them a bit of recovery at different power outputs, would the speed of that recharge change? We also wanted to see what effect fitness had. In other words, did people with higher CPs recharge more quickly than people with lower CPs? It turns out that recovery happens quicker at easier power outputs 
and that it also happens quicker if you have a higher CP. However, the most instructive part of this, even the fittest person we had, CP 351 watts, would take 26 minutes to totally recharge their battery of W prime, and that's if they spent those 26 minutes soft pedaling at 20 watts. For athletes who were not at such a high level, it would take them longer, approximately 31.5 minutes. So the take-home message on this is, If you are involved in any event that is going to require you to exercise for a long time, you need to severely limit the time you spend above critical power. Every time you use up some of the W prime, you are creating a debt that takes a long time to repay. You only want to go there when you absolutely have to, and then only for the minimum amount possible. Really, really fascinating stuff. I'm sure this is obvious to you in some ways, but really getting down and quantifying this, we're going to see this move forward with new software that's coming out plus in the software that this person actually owns themselves. But if you do want to check it out, I've got all the different links to some articles and some other articles about understanding work above threshold and how to best recover or going into the science deeper as to why your body does struggle when you get up there. The second interesting thing I found this week was on Reddit and it's an IMA. I don't know if you're familiar with Reddit. I don't know if you're familiar with IMAs, but basically it's someone that's coming on and willing to answer anybody's questions. And I found a really good one that happened recently. It was an ex-professional cyclist by the name of Michael Dietrich, and he had to stop riding prematurely because of something in his leg that stops him riding hard for a long time. But he still has a lot of passion for cycling. And I think he felt that this was a really good avenue to get out a lot of information and answer questions that people have and want to talk to pros about. So you can go through, there are over 170 responses Everything from what type of racing he did to what type of training he did, what type of food he ate. And it really is a fascinating look into the life of a pro. He was a domestic pro for American teams and definitely raced against some of the top guys. So he has some really interesting insight and I'd really love to get him on the show. I think it would be pretty cool to find out a little bit more. Okay, the nuts and bolts this week, revisiting marginal gains for the semi-pro. Well, that was going to be the title, but I've had to think about it, and it's more like it's another performance framework. I seem to be really racking up these performance frameworks over the last couple of months, but I find them really fascinating. I'm sure if you even get one new thing out of any of these performance frameworks and you can structure up your own, then it's going to be of benefit to you. So what I'm talking about this week is the framework that marginal gains actually fits into, because... Dave Brailsford developed his approach with around 15 key concepts and marginal gains is just one of them. So I thought I'd take a deep dive into the 15 based on an article called 15 Key Steps to Achieving Peak Performance by Professor David Denyer. It was published in a management magazine of all places, but it is an interesting read. It's a short read. So what I thought I'd do, I'd pull out the 15 and then how they will apply directly to your cycling as opposed to either the team environment or the professional environment that they were initially set up for. So we'll get cracking because there are a few of them. So number one, ensure clarity. Brailsford attributes success to understanding what you are trying to win, being clear about the purpose, setting an outcome that everyone buys into, and ensuring absolute clarity concerning roles, responsibilities, structure, and tactics. 
goals. It's pretty straightforward, right? It makes absolutely perfect sense. We've discussed it a thousand times before, but the difference here really is it's more about everyone else as much as it is you. So the other people that are helping you to win or to compete or do whatever you're doing in cycling and make sure they understand their role in helping you and moving you in the same direction. So being clear in your role and others' roles sets an accurate level of expectations when starting out, and it's something to fall back on when times get tough. Number two, create a podium program. British Cycling aimed for medals, nothing less. Team Sky was equally bold to win the tour with a clean, drug-free British rider within five years. Race to win. No, that is not the absolute lesson I want to pull out of this one. This is certainly not for all cyclists all of the time, but there are times in your riding when you're definitely training and racing for the win. If this is you being bold and relentless and knowing that that is what you're aiming for will push you to know that every minute of the day in some way is dedicated towards this win. And like I said, this is a little extreme and harder to apply at the individual level, but saying this out loud is just as bold as setting the goal in the first place. Number three, plan backwards. Brailsford followed five steps. Prioritize and decide what you want to win because you can't win everything. Number two, figure out what it would take to win. Number three, work backwards from what you want to win and where you are today. Number four, create a plan to close the gap. And number five, execute. And I do know he was pretty ruthless when it came down to this, especially selecting the talent that was going to get him those wins. But similar to Stephen Covey's concept of starting with the end in mind, this is more a performance plan than anything else. It's about a clear set of capabilities and instructions on how to become the best in your competition. Number four, focus on process. To ensure a win at the Beijing Olympics, it was calculated that an improvement in time from over four minutes to under three minutes, 55 seconds was needed. The resulting 355 program for the team was summarized in a video. In Beijing, the team executed 355, which had become the norm in training and won gold. Your goal as a cyclist is to increase your speed. Your system or process is your training schedule for the month. Your focus is on the training you do at any one moment. If everything else is in place, meaning that the right plan and program is there, then all you have to do is focus on the process, the daily training, which through consistency adds up to be the significant factor in determining your success at your event. Number five, get back to basics. Tim Kerrickson, head of performance support, argued for simplification, saying the rider who generates the most power for the longest period of time while weighing as little as possible and slipping efficiently through the air usually wins the race. To win the Tour de France, Bradley Wiggins focused on altitude training, weight control, and power output. Sounds simple, right? Well, it kind of is until you start putting it all together, but a simplified understanding of what elements you need to improve will help you sell the message and crystallize in your mind What are the most important performance elements that make the difference in your event? This may not be up to you, but if you understand the basis of your training, then it will guide you through your training with purpose. Number six, practice winning. The top riders in Team Sky raced fewer days than their rivals and structured seasons to accommodate mid-season training blocks in Tenerife. In 2012, 
Purists argued that Wiggins had peaked too early in winning three-week long stages prior to the tour. Yet, this was all part of the tactics. In those races, the team trained to win by defending a lead. How do you do this as a semi-pro? Sandbagging? Well, that's not semi-pro in my books, but it is easier said than done. It may come in the form of your first peak of the season, where you choose to peak for a smaller race or a less prestigious race that gives you the ability to be riding at the front. This is not only a confidence builder, but in practice, it really is about being in the right places at the right time. It's learning how to emotionally respond to pressure, and it's really just easing you into the role of winning and being comfortable with it. It's training for the main event, whatever that event may be. Number seven, aggregate marginal gains. Focus on improving components that can significantly affect overall performance by just 1%. Examples include taking riders' own mattresses and pillows to prevent neck and back problems, and even training the team on how to wash their hands correctly to reduce the chance of infections. We're all aware of the famed marginal gains method employed by British Cycling to dominate the world over the past six years or so. I've even covered my own broken down version in episode eight called the best three marginal gains for quick wins. So there's really no reason for me to go too far into this. But one comment I do want to make is that this idea alone probably killed some of cycling's tradition, but it is funny that most teams now probably employ some type of similar system today. Number eight, maximize the latest technologies. British Cycling has a small team known as the Secret Squirrel Club that was charged with finding technological innovations to boost rider performance. The team would search for ways to get marginal gains from using technological advances across sport, science, industry and military. For example, riders benefited from electrically heated hot pants as leg warmers that were inspired by Formula One's tire warmers. Okay, so you don't have a secret squirrel club of your own. Just look at the biggest performance return of investment and work your way down the list of products that will do this for you. Watch this space though because I plan on tackling this issue in a future episode. Number nine, conduct the orchestra. This is how Brailsford describes his approach to strategic leadership. He commented, I don't coach Riders directly, I coach a team of people, including coaches, to coach the riders. Brailsford maintains that the most important members of the teams are riders, not the coaches or the management. We talked about taking the crown off the head of the coach and putting it on the head of a rider. First and foremost, I work for the riders. How does this translate to the semi-pro? More ego for riders and less for coaches? It really is just a way for managers to think about how they lead, where their focus is, and if it's on the right elements. In a cycling team, yes, it's got to be the riders. End of story. Number 10, support the support. Team Sky were the first professional team that offered dedicated one-to-one coaching to all of its riders, deciding that the split of investment in riders versus support should be around 80-20 rather than the usual 90-10 split in pro cycling. You'll get more from a $900,000 rider with a coach than you would from a $1 million rider without one, was Brailsford rationale. This is all about making an investment in your own cycling, spending more of your budget on training knowledge and guidance, and shifting the focus from thinking about yourself as a single unit and looking at your support system and knowledge as a complete package to unlocking your performance. Number 11, charter a team. The British cycling team set its own team rules, which included respect one another, watch each other's backs, be honest with one another, respect team equipment, and be on time. They also had the following motivational motto on team clothing and printed on every bike. 
This is the line, the line between winning and losing, between failure and success, between good and great, between convention and innovation, between head and heart. It's a fine line. It challenges everything we do, and we write it every day. I'm going to leave this one alone, but... If you are part of a team, obviously having team rules can help set expectations for everybody. Even though I think Sky's rules are pretty much common decency, it's much better to state them plainly than not at all. Number 12, build a strong core in capitals. This was Brailsford's acronym to explain how success would be achieved. Commitment plus ownership plus responsibility equals excellence. This meant working only with people who had an intrinsic drive towards achieving a goal, people who take ownership of their training and development and responsibility for their performance. To me, this is the future of all coaching and performance relationships. No longer is a coach a dictator, but they need to listen to the feedback from the athlete. Under this model, more responsibility shifts over to the rider. So in their own training, they take responsibility of training and feedback and using the coach as a tool for them to succeed. Number 13, control the chimp. Brailsford has said that the best appointment he ever made was Steve Peters, a psychiatrist from Rampton High Security Hospital. Peter works with riders to preempt or control their chimp, the emotional or irrational part of the brain, which has the potential to inhibit performance. Mentioned already in episode 77 on confidence, check out that episode for more, but basically know what your chimp does in every crucial scenario to do with your riding. This is not just racing, mind you, it's just as important in training. Number 14, manage the triangle of change. To achieve change, people must A, commit to being better, B, psychologically minded, think that they can change, C, suffering enough to engage with change. If the first two are in place, Brailsford argues, it is possible to achieve change by either increasing consequence or reward. This one's a hard one to spot from the outside, but I come across this a lot in the cyclists I talk to. Almost everyone in cycling is trying to be a better version of themselves and are using cycling to help them achieve this. It's really powerful stuff, but it's not always easy to do. So this is where accountability can help and taking the desire and setting it up to ensure you're guided through the journey and held accountable for your actions in the most positive sense. And 15, the final one, stick to your principles. Whilst most professional teams abandoned their tough drug policies for truth and reconciliation following the Armstrong scandal, Brailsford reinforced zero tolerance for senior members of staff left Team Sky having confessed to past involvement in doping. We prefer to compromise our performance rather than change our policies, says Brailsford. This is a new trend with managers like Brailsford and Vorders leading the way. I wouldn't say Vorders is as black and white, but he definitely is leading the way in setting down the tone and the principles that the team operates under. And if you don't fit in that, you don't fit in the team. Definitely in their case, I don't see this as a publicity stunt or a shallow attempt at showing that they're trying to move the sport forward cleanly. The lesson here is what are your principles? You might live under a set of life principles, but what are they when it comes to cycling? This covers a whole range of different areas in cycling, not just performance. And it's anywhere from running red lights to taking shortcuts during races. If you know where you stand, things become a lot simpler when you're faced with these decisions, especially if they are split second decisions. 
So there's a lot there, and I hope you listen through again so you can try and pull something from this that is going to benefit your cycling. I find these frameworks really interesting because they can be applied directly to the semi-pro. Maybe not 15 steps, but if you are able to pick maybe two or three of these that you could focus on and make a change this season, I really think you're going to see a difference at the end of the season. Now, let's move on to the tech hacks and product section. And this week, another set of headphones. I mentioned one before, the Jaybirds, but this is from Plantronics, and they're the Backbeat Go 2. They're 80 bucks, so they look cheap and reliable compared to the Jaybirds and Yearbuds offerings, which are $160 plus. So you can ruin these and not feel too bad because 80 bucks is around the same price as a decent set of headphones. The beauty of these is, yes, it's a Bluetooth wireless setup. So it's really clean and it's an in-ear only so it doesn't get in the way of your helmet or your glasses. The other option here of course though is just getting a Bluetooth adapter like the Adapt and adding it to your old headphones. But either way, wireless is the way of the future. Now that quote from the top of the show, it's Jonathan Waters talking at TEDx Bermuda, April 2011. The presentation was called A Sea Change in Pro Cycling. It's the story of Waters and his team, Garmin Sharp currently. It's great. It's not long. It's around 20 minutes or so. I highly recommend you sit down and check it out so you can get an insight into the team and the man behind it. He really has built one of the most binded teams in terms of rider commitment to each other and to their cause. He is also another great example of performance systems and focusing on the process to get to your goal. The motto of our team is perfection is in the process. That means that Our team, of course, we want to win races, and we win a lot of them now. But the important part is that we're perfecting the process, everything from nutrition to training to the latest aerodynamics to um, athlete psychology to teamwork to just precision across the board. And if we perfect that, I don't actually care, and I have my sponsors convinced that they shouldn't actually care whether our guys win or whether they get 20th. That the point is is that their job is to perfect the process in getting there. Everything we do up to the moment of the start line, that has to be spot on. And if it's not, I'm very upset. And there is immense pressure on every single person from chiropractors to doctors to massage therapists to truck drivers to the athletes to have everything spot on in our organization. But once the race begins, then it's a race and it's an athletic competition. It is no longer... A job, and it is no longer something that you're, you know, just getting compensated to do, and that you're going to do whatever it takes to get the job done. Because I feel sport should be sport. There are definitely more nuggets of wisdom floating around that presentation, so I can't say it enough. Check it out. And that's it from me this week. So till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. The big issue, and I, I've heard a lot of people say, "Well, why don't?" You just let everyone take drugs, and then the playing field will be even. That's a fundamentally bunk argument, because if you just took drugs completely out of the equation in any professional sport, or or let everyone take whatever they want, excuse me, um, what you would get is that some people would, well, like when you, I don't know, when everyone here, maybe you guys have had a hangover before. Some of you, when you take one aspirin, that hangover goes away. Some of you maybe take two aspirin. Some of you can take eight and it still wouldn't go away. The same applies with performance-enhancing drugs. It doesn't equal the playing field if you just let everyone do it. It actually completely messes up the Darwinian aspect of sports. The best rider will not win even if everyone is taking the exact same drug. 
It's just not the way human physiology works. You're basically creating a winner out of the person whose physiology happens to be really well adapted to the drug of choice in that day. That to me is just, it's fundamentally wrong.